We live in a country where Fifty Shades of Grey is released in theaters on Valentine's Day. This is the state of our understanding of love between a man and a woman. It's godless and it's loveless. And much of that thinking has seeped into the church. In today's episode, we talk about the beauty of marriage and of real intimacy. There is nothing more romantic than a man and a woman getting married and raising a family together. I hope you enjoy the episode. But before we get started, I'm sure there are some of you out there who have not yet registered for the Helpful Marriage Conference. It's hard to believe, but I'm sure there's some of you. If you haven't registered yet, you need to stop what you're doing right now and get yourself registered. We'll be at the Indiana Landmark Center in Indianapolis on March 4th and 5th, and it's going to be great. We want you to join us, so please register today. You can register right now at HelpfulMarriage.com. We have Pastors Tim Bailey and Max Corral, the usual suspects in today's episode. My name is Lucas Weeks, and this is the Out of Our Minds Podcast. So we've been talking about marriage, and the first time we got together and talked about marriage, we talked about the three purposes of marriage. And then the following week, we spent some time talking about getting married, the difficulties involved in that. Today, I want to take a turn and focus specifically on a couple chapters that I have read in your book, Tim, that we hope to have released very soon. At the beginning of your book, you have a chapter in which you open up the comfort that Mary Lee was to you in ways that you hadn't expected. And can you describe that a little bit? What was so surprising to you at that time? Well, it's important to understand that Mary Lee and I had been, I don't know how to put this, but intending to marry one another for seven years. Mm. And so it wasn't as if we were unknown to each other. Mm -hmm. And so many of the benefits of love and companionship had already been a part of our relationship. We'd grown up reading classic books, novels with each other, discussing them on the phone. Our families were very similar, neither family had televisions. Our fathers were close friends in the same Sunday school class. Both our fathers were publishers and editors and authors. We both had a large family. Now, I say all of that because people need to understand that when we got married, we knew each other hmm. and loved each other. And so when you mention surprise, I want to make it clear that the reason that what happened was such a surprise to me was that I had no grid to understand what was going on. Hmm. So what happened? Well, what happened was that we started attending a church plant it was very small, and so worship was sort of theater in the round. Hmm. And so everybody looked at each other. In other words, you faced each other. Okay. So, so in a it, circle. It was particularly intimate. Is that what you're saying? Yes, very okay. intimate. And everybody could see everybody. Okay. All right. We were next to each other. And. At the conclusion of the worship service, the concluding hymn was, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. 
Mm. And as we sang it, all of a sudden, I just, I just could not stop crying. I wasn't making any noise, mm. but I was just crying. And I had no clue where that came from. Mm. I mean, I was absolutely mortified and shocked. Everybody's sitting there looking at me. I'm a newlywed. I have my wonderful, beautiful bride. Um, a number of the people there knew my dad and respected him because they had connections with InterVarsity. He was on the board of InterVarsity. Mm -hmm. You know, they knew my dad. And here his son was <laughs> lost it. So we got out of there and we went home. It was so interesting that when we got home, I still couldn't stop crying. I went in the bed and the bedroom and lay down on the bed, just trying to stop crying. Mary Lee came and sat on the edge of the bed trying to comfort me. And I was trying to figure out what on earth, what on earth? But then I remembered that y'all know the book, Alexander and the Terrible Horrible. No good, very bad day. Yeah. All of a sudden I remembered my terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And it was the day. You all are going to much more appreciate this story uh, in the book <laughs> because you don't have to hear me. Mm -hmm. um, but it was the day we buried my, my brother Joe. And it was a very cold day. It was in January. If I remember correctly, there was snow on the ground. And we were in the middle of moving from the church I had grown up in and the school my parents had helped start Delaware County Christian School. And my dad had taken a new job out in Elgin, Illinois, had a house built for us. He'd been working out there and only coming home once a month. And Joe got had a sledding accident and then the hospital Chick Coop, C. Everett Coop was the consulting doctor, and he told him, you know, if he if he seems to be getting better, normally he would have been in children's hospital, but he was 19, so he was beyond the age that they could take him. Hmm. And he said, you're going to think that he's getting better, and you're going to pull the plasma off of him. Whatever you do, when he starts to get better, keep giving him plasma. Well, as soon as he started getting better, they pulled the plasma off of him, and he died. Hmm. He was a student at Swarthmore. He was godly. And I remembered that that hymn, Savior Like a Shepherd Lead Us, is what we had sung at the grave, okay? Mm -hmm. And it's so hard to explain how sad that was. Mm. And it was sad before it because it was the third child my parents had lost. And so they were devastated. It was sad after because we got in the car and drove out to this house out in the middle of the country to a school I'd never seen, to a church that we knew no one. 
And my father had to be out on the road speaking all the time. And he and my mother were not getting along. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if anybody's lost children, you, you won't judge them harshly for that. Mm-hmm. And my sister was leaving for college and I had two little brothers who were, you know, I was probably 10 and they were what, four and six, or I was 12. I was very aware of everything going on. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, I think I'm back now. <laughs> what happened was that as I was lying on bed trying to stop crying, all of a sudden I realized that the reason I was crying was that that was the hymn that we had sung at that grave. That bedraggled, cold, snowy, awful, awful day when we left Philadelphia and left my three brothers buried together in the same grave. Hmm. Then I thought to myself, wait a second, this is strange. Why? I have sung that hymn many times since then. Why is it hitting me now? And then I realized it was hitting me then because I was married. Till death, God parts us. Till death do we part by God's command. I now had a helpmate. Hmm. And, and what that really meant was, and I'm sorry to be speaking so personally, but what it meant was that I now had someone that I was able to grieve with, okay? Mm. She was completely safe. She'd vowed marriage to me. I'd vowed marriage to her. And so many of the greatest difficulties of life had been resolved. Until death, I had a helpmate, a partner. Hmm. And so I was free to do what I had not done until then, Hmm. which was to mourn. Hmm. And, you know, people might say, well, you know, why weren't you free to mourn before? Many people have to mourn when they're single. Yeah. And I say, yes, that's one thing that I absolutely pity single people over. You know, you see Jesus outside of Lazarus's grave. And, you know, we just take for granted that Jesus did not have a wife. Mm. You know, you never hear sermons about the particular unique pain that that was for Jesus. You know, he had the sisters, Mary and Martha there, but both of them, (laughs) I think, had been pretty angry with him just a few minutes before Lazarus (laughs) came back to life. Yeah. And they were not wives, even though he loved them. Yeah. And I've often thought about this with priests and with men who are single, who are pastors. I just pity them that they have to go through the really often excruciatingly difficult parts of pastoral ministry of bearing other people's burdens without the comfort of a wife. And the fact was I had been single before and yes, I could have grieved, but there was another thing and that was that my parents were fighting to continue to hold the home together Mm. emotionally. Yeah. 
you know, the death had happened at Christmas time. It was years before my father was not being given regularly bah humbug gifts <laughs> at Christmas. I mean, that's what we gave him. Yeah. Because he was so depressed every Christmas and he was gone half the time anyhow. And so really for a boy growing up, there was no space in that home for me to grieve. Hmm. There was no one to talk to. And I know I'm crying as I tell this story, but it's just hard to express the beauty of marriage. Hmm. And, and mind you, in the book, we talk about, Mary Lee helps write the book and we talk about how really difficult our marriage was. Yeah. Yeah. You said that on this show, uh, the first 10 years were very, very difficult. Yeah. And so it's not that I'm looking at marriage with rose-colored glasses. Well, th yeah, that was what popped into my mind. I'm trying to put myself in the in the ears of, in the minds of those listening and thinking like, well, so it's great for you that you have a, a relationship with a particularly godly woman or a particularly sweet start to marriage or something like that. And, you know, based on what I've heard you describe before, there wasn't anything particularly special about your marriage. Oh, yeah. I mean, if people want to know what our marriage was like, the best way to do it is just to listen to Heather or to Mary Lee's podcast mm. about it. <laughs> yeah, I can link to that. Yeah, yeah, I'll link to that because uh, anybody that feels that they're that they have a corner on pain in marriage or in dating or courtship or whatever you want to call it, anybody that thinks that Tim Bailey, you know, Joe Bailey's son and Ken Taylor and his daughter would have had a pristine beginning. <laughs> I mean, listen to that, listen to that podcast and my wife, your eyes will be, <laughs> shall we say, opened. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Mary Lee and I were pieces of work. So no, I would not say we, we were anything special. And yet, Lucas, I say to you about marriage that it is absolutely in all its horror and difficulty and pain, it is gorgeous. Mm. It isn't pretty. It's gorgeous. The only thing better is God himself. Hmm. I mean, God said it was not good for the man yeah. to be alone. Yeah, that's right. That's and right. so without in any way dissing those who are single, those who have been called to singleness, Yep. There's a reason that God made that observation and there must be some joys and beauties and and comforts that come to us in marriage that remedy something so awful that God says it's the only part of his creation he says it is not good. Mm. You know, obviously Tim's your story Tim is really moving. Uh, so, okay. I want to ask Tim Max a question and I want to give him the permission to not have uh, a story that packs quite so much of a wall up. I think but, you don't have to show us but, your scar, but I mean, yeah, I, I think, I think we all as husbands have, if we think back to the way that we, that, that God has blessed us um, emotionally through having a, a wife who loves us and comforts us. I think we all have, you know, stories to tell or things to say about that. What would, what would you say along those lines, Max? I was thinking of the two women 
in any man's life who would be the most important women to him. Oh, any man's life. Okay, in yeah, any man's ahead. life. Uh-huh. And of course, mother. Yeah. <laughs> pretty right? important. She's pretty important. <laughs> yep, yep. And then wife. Mm-hmm. And well, the, the chapter of the book that you're referring to, which I haven't seen, mm-hmm. uh, talks about Isaac mm-hmm. receiving his wife and being comforted in the death of his mother. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something important about that that uh, connection that's made because he lost the one woman who provided him a place of vulnerability, mm. I think. Mm-hmm. And he received another woman who provided him a place of vulnerability. And as I listen to Tim tell that account, which I've heard, it's it's like, yeah, here Tim receives his wife and suddenly he has a place where he can release this vulnerability mm-hmm. and find a context for comfort, mm-hmm. just like Isaac did with Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Found a context for comfort. And like you just said, Lucas, I can say that over and over again with <laughs> my marriage. This is a reality of, of our, our lives that here our wives are, and they are that safe place for me to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks about how women are vulnerable in marriage and how they're submitted to their husbands and how they're, you know, in every way. Typically, they're smaller in size. There's just a, a, thun, a ton of ways women are more vulnerable. The process of, of just uh, procreation, yeah, women are vulnerable. But the fact is men are incredi- incredibly vulnerable to their wives or should be because that's one of the blessings that they are to us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we have a place to be comforted. You know, we have a breast to lay our heads on mm-hmm. and go to. And that is, as Tim just said, an incredible gift from God mm-hmm. that that he has made this possible. Well, I love the fact that you started the book with this, Tim. And part of the reason is because we now live in the... I, I'm, I feel like we're getting to a post-feminist time. It's the red pill world. So I think that there are, are a lot of men potentially who could read this book and just think, oh, brother, here we go again, another wounded healer kind of a story. But I I just think that anyone that would accuse you of something like that is out to lunch. And it's essential that we don't that we don't fall into that ditch into the sort of red pill world of, I don't know what rah, rah, men, tough, strong, silent type or something. I, I don't know what precisely how to describe it. But one of the things that I kept thinking about as you as I read through this chapter, Tim, is I kept thinking about Schomburg's false intimacy and mm-hmm. how the whole, your whole chapter is just this beautiful opening up what real healthy emotional intimacy between a husband and a wife looks like. Now, obviously, again, your story packs a, a certain, I mean, it's, it's yours. It's your specific story. Every marriage is not going to be like that. You're not going to have, every man is not going to respond the same way you did, Tim. But what you're trying to call couples to is to be emotionally intimate with each other and not to be falsely intimate with all the other competitors these days. Can you talk about that a little bit, Tim? Well, yeah. I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is 
it's been a grief to me my my entire ministry how missionaries that we are friends with and support in other parts of the world, but particularly in Africa, just have cynical attitudes towards African men and try to empower women as a solution. Mm, Okay. And so you're always finding women who have been disappointed and harmed by men and men who have been disappointed and harmed by women who are determined that it is good to be alone. Hmm. And they always look grotesque because there's such a twisted mass of humanity in their efforts to deny what is plain from all of history and from God's very words. It's not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for the woman to be alone. Mm. So you look at the pains that people have suffered and you think to yourself, well, (laughs) that's awful. Yep. I mean, yep. no one's going to dismiss the pain of a man whose whose wife, you know, we've had this in our churches, whose wife decides that she wants to renew a relationship with some high school sweetheart. Yeah. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. And so she takes the children and leaves and then proceeds to lie about him. The rest of that man's life will be suffering through the fact that he once was married to a woman who hates his guts. <laughs> All right. Mm -hmm. And then you think of women whose husband has abandoned them for younger flesh. Yep. And, you know, I mentioned in the last episode, you know, she, I've had a number of women tell me about sitting in a church with his new wife and her ex husband sitting in front of them in church. No discipline of the elders. Just, he's got younger flesh. He's got, you know, he's got a gold digger as, as a wife now. She's pretty, she's young, she doesn't have stretch marks, right? Yep, yep. She doesn't have the children sitting with her in the pew. So you think about the various sufferings, and I'm just using those two because those two are pretty standard. But there are other sufferings that cause men and women to hate one another. Men hate women, women hate men, okay? Yep, yep. And I won't go into them, they're too painful to talk about. Hmm. But when people try to live in such a way that denies that it is not good for them to be alone. Or when they have relationships with members of the same sex, Mm. which keep them from having to accept the gift that God has given us of the opposite sex. Mm -hmm. They're also grotesque. Mm. You know, two gay men together, two lesbian women together, will try to reap produce the the dynamic of male and female but there it, it, it's grotesque yeah yeah and so you look at situations like that and one of the things i was thinking about was you know the whole red pill migtel movements yeah you know men going the other way you know they don't need women <laughs> it's so funny because if you if you go online and you read lesbians in a forum talking to each other you read you know red pill guys talking to each other it's so funny because they have the intimacy with each other emotionally, but it's entirely bitter, toxic. You know, I never forget 20 years ago, I think it was, reading about there was this uh, group of uh, women who were lesbians and 
they would get together every summer and have this huge camp out, sort of like Burning Man, but for lesbians only. It was out east somewhere. I almost want to say Pennsylvania. And there was this big discussion between them about the fact that they had made a rule that they would no longer allow any adoptive or natural children who were boys to be at the campground. Hmm. Okay. And you just think about people who are in bondage to their hatreds. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so when people think about the issue of, well, isn't that peachy keen? You know, maybe if I hadn't had a woman kick me in the, you know, what's, uh, I could aspire to you. Aren't you superior? You know, the sort of, uh, angry dissing of me and any of us who have a good marriage And the assumption by those people is that we haven't suffered. We haven't had the pain they have. They're the sore thumb of the universe. Mm -hmm. You know, they're the only true victim. And so they get together with other victims. They try to deny the goodness of women if they're men. They try to deny the goodness of men if they're women. They might be willing to tolerate their brothers or their sisters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it is... It is awful on so many levels. As I said, it's grotesque. It's garish, number one. Yep. But another level is that the premise of the whole movement of men hating women and women hating men, the premise of those movements is wrong. And that is that those of us who are happily married don't have real sins committed against us by our husband or our wife and don't suffer in those marriages. I mean, where is the Christian understanding of the sanctification that comes only by suffering? Mm-hmm. You know, Mary Lee didn't want to marry some blubbering weak man that would cry in front of everybody <laughs> when they sang Savior like a shepherd lead us. <laughs> what had happened to her man? Right. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. and I just think people have to understand I remember my dad writing back about 35, 40 years ago in his column in eternity. He wrote something to the effect that, you know, people nowadays think that they're they're the only ones that have it difficult concerning adultery. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That adultery is so much easier today. And he said, you know something? He said, we had it difficult. We were tempted. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We had opportunities. And then he said, but I like to think that we had taken vows and we were determined to be faithful to them. Mm. Now, does that sound like some dude, (laughs) you know, who has rose-colored glasses and sentimentality and cotton candy? No, no, it doesn't. No. And I remember, I have never told this story before, but I remember about 10 years ago, my brother David and I were both pastors and we were talking to each other about our parents' marriage. David told me something I never knew. He said to me, you know, one time dad looked at me and dad said, son, don't worry. Your mother and I will never get divorced. Hmm. In the middle of a fight or what? No, no, no. I don't know what was going on, but it was so obvious to my father that David knew precisely the difficulty. I remember, I don't know if I've ever told this story before. 
my dad, so I had lived in this house of a bunch of dope smoking hippie artists. Yeah. You know, I had rented the house and there were about eight or nine of us in it. And, and my dad had kicked me out of the house because I was not living for God. Yep. But he had a desire to try to reach out to me. So he asked me to accompany him down to La Ciudad de Mexico, down to Mexico City, where he was going to be speaking at an international conference of Wycliffe Bible translators. Mm-hmm. And so I went down with him. We flew down, shared a room together. And one night he asked me about my life. I'm sure it was somewhat reassuring to him when I told him that I was, yeah, that I smoked dope occasionally, but that I was not buying it and I wasn't doing any other drugs. I think he, he thought that I was regularly doing drugs. Mm. But then we kept talking, and it's one of the things I regret most in my life is that at some point I looked at him and I actually said to him, I hate you for the way you treat my mother. Hmm. There is nothing I could have said that would have hurt my father more Hmm. emotionally. Hmm. And he loved my mother. The thing I want to say to people who don't want to love the good things that God gives us and, and, and right at the top is he loved the world so much that he sent us his son. I don't want to in any way diminish that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But right at the top under that is the gift of children, the gift of a wife through whom our lovemaking produces these precious little ones. If it's a mystery, a great mystery, behold, I'm speaking of Christ and his church. That's what Paul says when he talks about marriage and the responsibility that we have to love our wives the repudiation and rejection by so many people today of marriage and sex and lovemaking and children, all those organic things that we choose to fly to Cancun or to Jamaica, fella, (laughs) or have a, you know, have a cabin up in Northern Wisconsin or in, you know, up in Maine. It's so pathetic. Mm. And I refuse to be sympathetic for victims who hold the world and God hostage through their pain. Mm. I refuse to. Mm-hmm. Like my father said, This generation does not have a corner on suffering. Mm -mm. And we have had to go through very difficult things in our marriage. And I say we because I know it's true of you, Max, and of you, Lucas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the pain comes to us in different ways. I mean, Max, when I think of the pain that I have gone through with you, All right. You may not want to talk about it publicly. When I think of the pain, Lucas, that Mary Lee more than I, but that we have gone through with you and Hannah, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you may not want to talk about it publicly. And it may be that people would say, well, that doesn't qualify because that's not a pain that caused you to hate your wife or your husband. But I mean, 
what a truncated view of the interrelatedness of suffering and marriage and faith. Mm. What I've been sitting here thinking about the whole time is we glory in the things that are the most painful. I mean, it's so weird to say that and you think that I'm trivializing it, but we, we treasure it because it is where we look at God and say, I trust you, I love you. And it's where we're in solidarity with his son. That's right. And his suffering. Mm-hmm. That's right. So I want to hit another topic before we move on to another chapter in the book. And I think it's related to what you're saying. I think that there are so many ways that we avoid the pains of actual intimacy through false intimacy. And Max, I want to turn to you and get your thoughts on this concept of false intimacy. Because I just think it is such a huge danger to young couples today. Young couples today, we're we're growing up with the internet, you're growing up with Facebook, you're growing up with all the ways provided for false intimacy. I mean, there have been romance novels for a very long time, hundreds of years. But of course, pornography, online, social media stuff has just amped up false intimacy to the max. And it's, I, I think it's such a danger. What would you say to couples who you sense are maybe not connecting emotionally? Maybe even you think, wow, I'm not even sure these people have the ability to connect emotionally. Or, or maybe they are afraid to do that very thing because they sense the danger. They sense the, the problems that come with real emotional intimacy. What, what would you say to them? We use the term false intimacy, and it's a strange thing because what is true intimacy? Hmm. Okay, um, that's a good question. <laughs> false intimacy means that you have circumvented it. It's like if you think about false, what's false nutrition? What about fake news? <laughs> yeah, what's false news? What's false nutrition? Well, if you ate cake, mm. hey, here comes the, here comes the appetizer. It's cake. And here comes the cheese, it's cake. And here comes the meal, it's cake. And here comes the after dinner, it's cake. And here comes dessert, it's, oh, guess what, cake. <laughs> and it's like there isn't, it's not, it's not real nutrition. You right? feel full, you yeah, feel fed. Well, you feel something. Yeah, satiated. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you look, at, you look at people with false intimacy and what they don't have is the responsible commitments that bring about true intimacy. And so they're, they're engaging in something without responsibility. Hmm. And so it, they, they cannot find the fruit. For instance, if true intimacy does bring one thing that's likely, it's likely going to bring a child. Ha! <laughs> right? But yeah. just yeah. using that as a as the the great big example of the fruit of real intimacy because with a child comes all of the responsibilities of a child hmm. all of the changes that will happen in your life because we have a child well what if you have five children what if the fruit of your marriage is all of these beautiful children what if you have five children and five miscarriages hmm or children who die. All of these things, it's not the removal of the, the fruit of intimacy that you have a miscarriage. There is true fruit mm-hmm. to intimacy. In God's plan, whether the children survive birth, whether they survive five years old, whether they survive you, mm. 
the the fact of the matter is you brought about fruit in intimacy with the with the intention of living with the consequences and responsibilities of your love for one another. So so you would say false intimacy is an attempt at intimacy but avoiding the responsibilities that come with and, with that. And therefore there is no intimacy. Hmm. It's not real. So we call it that's why it's called false intimacy. It isn't there. We don't have the commitments, the responsibilities. You could, I suppose, say some vulnerabilities, but I don't know how you get around the, I don't know how you can achieve real vulnerability mm. if you don't have responsibility. Well, that's and fascinating because it's just like, what Tim immediately pointed to was to death do us, do we yeah, part yeah, with yeah. he and Mary Lee. And that, that bond or that commitment was there. It was written in stone. So then the, there was real intimacy as well. Um, hadn't thought of it like that. Well, before. I think about Tim brought up his parents and his father talking about the the reality of of temptations when he was younger, mm. and the reality of the vows that they took and the commitments they made. And I it made me think about my parents, and I thought about well, I never heard my parents talk about divorce, and I hardly ever saw them arguing or anything. That didn't mean they didn't. I know they did, right? Mm-hmm. But the fact is that. It was a time where I'm very thankful that there wasn't a context where I ever thought about my father, Hmm. my mother and father being, my mother being in danger of being jettisoned or my father being in danger of being left. I just never had the thought of that. And I think it was more true. In fact, when, as I was a child, when divorce was talked about, it was almost like, well, I, I don't even want to really quite bring this up. That yeah, this has actually happening, and that like, you know, it was like it was like a dirty word that was out there. You're not supposed to say the name you're Voldemort. Not, yeah, yeah, you don't <laughs> say Voldemort. And uh, and so you think about that, and that's actually a very good thing in the in the yeah. in the context of the commitment that those people had in that day, the 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 uh, strength and commitment they had toward the vows that they had made as mm. they got married. Yeah. That's a powerful reality. We tell people in premarital counseling, look, this isn't a word. Just don't even use the word. Mm. I mean, you can use it in in talking about the concept itself, right? right but you don't, it's not like it's going to curse you to use it. But right. if, you call, if you talk this word in your marriage right, right. and in your home, it's destructive so to destructive. even talk the word. Yeah. You've made a vow. Mm-hmm. One of the things in the book that we talk about is the hypocrisy of Christians who deny that they fight. I find it infuriating. Yeah, and I can yeah. imagine people listening to this podcast thinking, well, you know, your parents talked about divorce, and so he, they had to reassure your brother, and that's not right. They shouldn't, they shouldn't be acting in such a way that, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da. And the thing that makes me angry about such responses is, I have never known a couple that did not have tension between them because of their sin. Never. Right. Absolutely. Okay. And so can we be done with this notion, this lie that Christians who are conservative believe that if they can just be like this or that couple that they look up to, Mm -hmm. that if they had a husband like Tim Bailey or Doug Wilson or or John uh, Piper Lucas Weeks or, something, or yeah. John Piper. And so, no, my parents never talked about divorce. But I have lived with two couples 
And I say lived with, I actually did live with Mary Lee's parents for a while. And we spent two weeks a year, the entire time they were alive with them and all the family, you know, 50, 60, 70, now over a hundred of us. So I've lived with both sets of parents. Both of them were universally respected by the Christian world. Their friends were the leaders names that, you know, Mm. and both of them had sins (laughs) <laughs> in their marriages mm-hmm. that anybody half awake could see. These are famous Christian leaders, you know? Yeah. And what we have to get into our heads is, first of all, we have to get into our heads that the fall actually fell on us. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Adam sinned, and we all have been corrupted by original sin. And we are totally depraved. Our intellect, our our reasoning ability, our bodies, our desires. It is not that there is nothing good in us. It's not that we're as bad as we could possibly be. But we have to recover the biblical doctrine of the fall and original sin. Yeah, we can't be surprised by it. I mean, yeah. And if it's true, then it's true of you, and Hmm. it's true of your wife, and it's true of your precious children. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we have to begin to take this seriously in the way we live with each other. We need to get better at saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Mm -hmm. No ifs, ands, and buts about it, I was wrong. Mm -hmm. We have to get good at recognizing the pain and suffering that our sin causes our children and our wives Mm. and our husbands. Well, and I think that one of the pains, one of the ways that we inflict pain, that we sin against our families, is just by checking out emotionally and looking for intimacy in places that are false, in whether it's pornography or social media, you know, the doom scrolling. You know, what are you doing when you're looking at Facebook endlessly for no particular reason, but you feel a kind of an ache and ennui? <laughs> you know, what, what is that doom scrolling about? What is looking, you know, reading uh, fantasy fantasy, and, and uh, football game, football, game, all of that, all that false intimacy? We are avoiding the difficult, but, but, you know, I, I say difficult work of real intimacy, but come on, is, is like, what are we here for? What are we on this planet for? I mean, what are we doing? Uh, it is beautiful. It's, it's what we were made for. And so don't waste your life. Don't waste your life on the false fake news, false intimacy. Give yourself, especially in your marriage, to being comforted by your wife, by by being Im- Im- intimate, emotionally intimate with, with your husband or wife. Well, so you have another chapter called The Best Wedding Gift, and it's it's all about that first year of marriage. And I think it, it really does dovetail nicely with what we've talked about so far. And there's a sentence in it. Once married, though, he, he the husband, is tempted to think that these tasks are accomplished. Okay, so you begin the chapter with a generalization about men and women before and after tying the knot. Men are mission-oriented, and so to be blunt, once the mission is accomplished, it's time to move on to other missions, right? Of course, the woman is not thinking along those lines. What would you say to men, let's start with the men, 
to help them through this first year in what could, in what could easily become very difficult and full of conflict on this particular issue, on their mission-mindedness? Let me set the biblical framework for this, and then David can describe what we run into in premarital and postmarital counseling. And the biblical framework is two, twofold. I have one chapter that is based on the text from Deuteronomy 24.5, when a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army, nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year, and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. <laughs> the other parameter is that it is said in Genesis that this, for this reason, the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Mm. And what's interesting about that is that it's the man that is commanded to leave. The man, not the woman, the man. And here it's the man that's commanded to give happiness to his wife. And so there is a whole section of, a whole chapter of the book that deals with the difficulty of in-laws and competing for the attention and center of your home and your marriage, okay? And, yep, yep. But this chapter is on this issue of making your wife happy for the first year. And you read the sentence, and I think it would be good to open up listeners' eyes to the, the constancy of this problem in marriage. Once married, though, he is tempted to think these tasks are accomplished. So he's got the job done. The, the knot is tied, and... He's feeling happy. Right away, it's funny because we talked, I think, last time about how premarital counseling makes us all laugh because <laughs> yeah, yeah. we tell them all, you know, <laughs> what what's going to happen and try to prepare them. And then then they come to us, you know, eight months after they're married and they'd say, why didn't you tell me about this? And mm -hmm. tell me about this? Mm -hmm. Well, because you were picking out, uh, we did tell you, but, you know, you were picking out the color of the... Tie. ribbon that was going to go around the third bridesmaids <laughs> you know and uh and the fact is that establishing a home is it's real work it isn't just a woman figuring it out a man is figuring out both of them are figuring out how to establish this home there's a new household mm-hmm Mm -hmm. And so the man thinks, okay, well, I got a wife and I can have sex now and I'm, and it's all good and Yahoo and I'll go to work. And when I come home, I'll just have whatever I want to have and it'll be great. <laughs> it'll be you great. Know, it doesn't require any maintenance and no tending and no care and no help and no anything. Well, and of course, there's all these expectations. Big source of conflict is assumptions and certain expectations that are different. And so... What are some of those expectations you think that are different in that first year for men and for women? Well, I think the men, who knows? I mean, <laughs> what was, what did mommy do? Yeah. Well, well mommy always did that and mommy right. always did this. And I think why can't huge. you do what mommy did? And, you know, she, you know, and or daddy. My, I always had my socks rolled up this way and, and, you know, and you never roll them up that way. And, you know, and it's like. Oh my she goodness! Is well, for the okay. chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> so, so each of us could go around the table and share the particular thing 
that we had a conflict with. You know, every marriage is a little different. I actually, there's a chapter on that too that Tim has in his book, and I appreciate that. It's like, okay, everyone, your marriage is going to be different than anyone else's. That's great. It also means that the assumptions that you fight about are also going to be different. In my case, it was about the morning routine. Who does what? You know, it took us a couple of years. I mean, I'm a pretty thick headed. And so I was like, why am I always irritated about this? But we could all go around the table and it could be slightly different about what what the assumptions were. Well, yeah, I think it's funny because I'll I'll tell a kind of comical one. My father-in-law, who's been gone now for 20 years, but he worked a full-time job at a chemical company. And then he, he owned about six apartment buildings in Cincinnati and Ohio. And he would uh, work after work at the chemical company. He'd go and he would tend to his apartment buildings and he would work there until later at night. And then he would come home. Well, he had three daughters, Mm. three rambunctious daughters who (laughs) wanted to see their dad. And so he would, as a rule, come home and be so exhausted, but he'd want to be with the family. He didn't want to go and lay in his bed. Yeah, yeah. And he wanted to be kind of with the family. So this is what he did. He would come <laughs> That's in every man. and he would, with the he would crawl under the dining room table ah. and he would lay there. And the reason why he crawled under the dining room table <laughs> is because it, it prohibited his daughters from jumping into the air <laughs> and landing on him and crushing his body <laughs> with these these uh, pile pile right drivers to the solar plexus. what they what they would call the pile driver of love you know in the in the and that was one kind of thing that i think my wife when we married i think she thought that the natural thing for me to do was to come home from work well, first of all, uh, I think funny. she wanted me to work until 10 o'clock at night, which <laughs> I, I wasn't going to do. And then, when she, and then when I would come home, she w- kind of wondered why I didn't go and lay under the table. And it's just That's hilarious. Awesome. But it's a, it's a funny anecdote to illustrate how we all come into marriage thinking mm-hmm. things are going to be this way or things are going to be that way. And what we have is a, a brand new canvas because it's a brand new house, yep. a man and a woman under God married. And a there's sinner of the male sex and a sinner. Yes. Two sinners and they have to figure it out <laughs> and the figuring it out has to come under the guides, under the auspices, under the authority of God's word. Yep. And it has to come about in the context of all that sin and all that mess with all the pressures and struggles of this world as well, with all of the family pressures from the outside coming in on them, right? Yep, yep. And so, yeah, a man leaves his mother and father, and he goes and he clings to his wife. Well, do we have to say that the woman leaves her mother and father? Uh, We do. I think there was a time when probably maybe we didn't have to say that, but we really do have to say that. But the, but the man certainly, and mm. I wonder if it isn't because the man has to leave his mother. Hmm. <laughs> you, you can't, know, you David, can't have to. Knowing you and loving you, I think it would be helpful for people to know how many children do you have? Well, we have three children. All right. Two not, girls and one boy. Not for lack of wanting more. Yeah. But yes, but God was and pleased to give us So three. Annie... 
had a father that crawled under the dining room table to keep his kids from jumping on you, what was it that you would do <laughs> to satisfy your desires in connection with the floor and the children <laughs> and your wife? Well, I always enjoyed, uh, I'm very much touch oriented, so I'm uh -huh. tactile. Yeah. I like hugs. I like, you know, lots of love, lots yep, of love. Yep, yep. And so I would love to lay on the floor and then we would just stack the family on top of me like, <laughs> like a stack of pancakes. And it was great because it felt like, you know, it, I could, you know, just had this great feeling like, I guess what the kind of feeling people say they get when they go to the chiropractor or something. I don't know. But <laughs> they get this, readjusted. Yeah. Or like getting stretched out on the rack. I'm not sure which one you want to say. The table that turns up upside but down. But it always made me feel better to yeah. have my family just laying up on top of me. I'd lay down on my stomach and then my son would lay on top of me and then on up they'd stack, you know, uh -huh. the kids would uh -huh. stack and, um, and it was a joy. And what what you used to say about it is that you love to feel their weight. Yeah, I did. Those of us who know David well, Max well, he has always struck me to have a, a very uh, winsome trait, which is to live in a direct way without getting into any sort of twisted angst. And when you think about him just telling that story about wanting to feel the weight of his family, you think about Annie trying to make the adjustment of the father who's trying to keep from feeling the weight of his family mm. to, a, mm. to a husband that wants to feel the weight of his family. Mm. But, but, I, but I think there's something else here. The older I've gotten, the more I've become convinced that you never have a really healthy marriage of especially of Christians, until the wife delights in giving herself, not to her husband's principles only, but to his preferences. Mm. And you think about things like, I have so often tried to explain to, to wives that they should touch their husbands when they come home. Touch them. Just lower yourself and touch them. Mm. And women look at me like I'm crazy. It's like, no, no, you know, you can hear them thinking, well, then it will lead to sex to that, that <laughs> thing that we do. And it's like, no, actually, your husband wants to feel your affection on his hair, on his head, on his shoulders, on his back, on his arm. Touch him, mm. for heaven's sakes. And you think about the adjustment of a wife and husband to each other. Yeah, yeah. And you think about Annie lowering herself to such a, such stupidity. Hmm. I mean, honestly. Well, my husband likes for me to all lie down on top of him on the floor. I mean, <laughs> you know, what a delightful marriage that that's what David wanted and that's what Annie and his children gave him. Hmm. I mean, that's really very helpful about the preferences thing because especially in that first year of marriage I think this is particularly for the woman to be open to her husband's preferences will make the transition much smoother and so when you think about God commanding us as husbands to spend that first year making our wives happy that does not mean that you don't ask her to 
live in a way that is according with your preferences, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that if what makes her happy is spending $1,000 a week on a credit card that you give in to that. How you obey that command of scripture is, again, unique in every circumstance. And I would say, as I have said to husbands, if you do not say no to your wife in that first year, you are foolish. Because saying no to your wife counterintuitively is one of the things that will make her most secure. She might fight you intensely over the particularities in the moment, but your no's to her are going to accrue for you. If they're not self-centered, if they're not trivializing conflict, in other words, if they're wise and firm no's, Mm given with perfect sympathy, they will accrue for you an unbelievable amount of emotional capital with your wife. Mm. It won't come at the moment. Trust me. (laughs) (laughs) You You know, I had the realization at some point that authority, as a man grows in authority, it's often like getting a new pair of boots that are like uncomfortable and, you know, mm-hmm. as you, that's wise. As yeah. you, as you break them in, you often do things that are just, I mean, like you react a little <laughs> too strongly this time. You're too rigid. You're maybe a little bit Barney Fife over here. You know, maybe you're too lenient over here and you just want to throw in the towel. I don't know. There's just, but it's just really hard. It's really hard. And there's nothing for it but to go for it and to make the mistakes and to walk through it. And so don't, don't feel like you got to get it right. hundred percent perfect. Cause you won't no matter what. And if you think that then you'll, you'll really fail, <laughs> but success is walking through it and giving it your best shot and growing as a result. Yeah. Of- and as you're talking, you think about physical intimacy, it's the same way. Mm-hmm. It is again, it's like breaking in a new boot. I talk about that in the book in connection with the age-old problem of women wanting to cuddle and talk and men wanting, shall we say, to get to the point. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, this is a problem that everybody has, but everybody solves it in a different way. Yeah. And so the exercise of authority and sex and submission, if I can put it this way, they're all muscles that need to be taught until they have muscle memory Mm. until you don't have to think about it. You don't have to be excruciatingly careful lest you hurt one another's feelings. You begin to live together in unity and harmony, but it takes a lot of exactly what you're talking about, Lucas, to get to that point. And that's one of the beauties of being you know, on the far side of 30 and 40 years. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that you don't sin. It doesn't mean that you don't fail your spouse, but so much of your marriage now has muscle memory and it prevents so much conflict and it causes there to be so much mutual sympathy and understanding. And so do the hard work. That first year of marriage, if the Bible commands you to make it a year that you're focused on making your bride happy, 
do the hard work. Mm. And so I talked a second ago about part of the hard work being willing to exercise responsibility and authority, even though it feels awkward to you and it's not appreciated by her in the moment, at least. (laughs) Well, I think we ought to talk a little bit about one thing that makes women happy that many women today will deny and that they will be able to fool their husbands so that their husbands don't make them happy, and that's having children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you in the book you talk about the significance of a wife having children or, or a couple being open to children in that first year, it, particularly because it will make your wife happy. When we look at having children, we are looking at something much more than just producing a child. Ta-da, yeah. a child. Yeah. No, no, you're looking at a life. Yeah. Yeah. And so Tim brings up women uh, wanting to have a child. Mm-hmm. And right away, in your mind, you're having this argument. Well, no, women today don't want a child. That's mm-hmm. not what they want. Women don't really want a child. And then you say, oh, wait a minute. You you think about all of the ways in which the culture just constantly makes it absolutely clear that yes, in fact, women do want a child. What do you mean? Well, because the way they joke about it, the way they defer to it in this or that situation. In other words, you're seeing it happen all the time. You're seeing it made fun of. You're seeing mm. there are ways that it's made fun of, but it, it has to be. It, it's almost like it's almost like it becomes absurd when they make fun of women who have children. Do you follow what I'm saying? I'm not following. Well, if you if you <laughs> well, see, but David, it's it's even better than that because I recently watched a YouTube video that was comedy, and it was this sort of butch grandmother woman taking her the live-in boyfriend, or I don't know, it might have been her husband, but anyhow, she's alone with her prospective or present son-in-law, and she absolutely. You know, she's sophisticated, she's dressed well, she is the modern woman, hear her roar, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so then she says to him something like, give me a grandchild, (laughs) you know? And so it's like, you're totally unprepared for it because, you know, she's sophisticated, she's sort of butchous, you know, she's older, she's sophisticated, she's educated, and all of a sudden the whole thing breaks down to her saying over and over and over to him, give me a grandchild, you know? Well, you think about the people watching this and all of them have two careers. All of them are educated. In other words, it was a sort of sophisticated. It might even have been Saturday Night Live. I don't know. Have either of you guys seen that video? Yeah, no, I was like going to bring the up people one. people that would watch it are people that would identify with the two people who were very sophisticated. Yeah. And so everybody's laughing about the fact that everybody knows that what an older woman wants is grandchildren. Mm. And they also know that what a younger woman wants is children. Yeah. And yet we all are committed to lying to one another. They were they were making fun of uh, breastfeeding in public on one of those skits, uh, Tim, and it was hilarious because they 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 did it by having a courtroom scene. And of course, if you've been in a court lately, you've you'll realize that it's almost all women in the courtroom. The lawyers are women, the judge is a woman, the bailiff's a woman, everybody's a woman. 
right? And so the recorder, they had in this courtroom scene, they had every woman in the scene, the judge, the bailiff, the recorder, the prosecutor, the attorney, everybody there while they were doing their job were nursing a child. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. And it was just just (laughs) hilarious. It was hilarious. Did you guys read the news thing about the... the, uh about the woman, uh, MP and member of parliament over in England who took her child, her baby, into parliament, and they actually rebuked her formally for Wow, it. yeah, I did hear about that. I, when that happened, I said to Mary Lee, that's not going to continue. <laughs> uh, not that the woman won't bring the baby in. They're not going to be able to continue their traditions. Mm. It's all over. For that world, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you know, knock your socks off, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, have your day. But pretty soon, Parliament's going to be filled with women who are nursing and have their children in Parliament or right outside in the nursery where somebody can come in and get them. Mm. And uh, well, and continuing with what we were talking about, Lucas and I earlier, the fact is that having children. It it changes completely. The dynamic, the dynamic of a marriage, the dynamic of your life, your trajectory as a husband, your trajectory as a wife, your trajectory as a father, your trajectory as a mother—they are all changed when you have children, and you have to embrace that and say, "This is good." And the world, even if they will acknowledge and allow you to have a late-in career baby, that you they toss in and, "Oh yeah, we'll give you that one." Lifestyle right. option. Yeah, we'll give you that one. They are not going to have any kind of grid to understand you embracing, loving, being a father of five to seven to nine children, or you being a mother of five to seven to nine children, or even today in our in our climate, three, yeah, or two, three or four is big. Yeah, I mean that's point. just that's just seen as that's just huge. That's amazing. That's so mm-hmm. many. You know, mm-hmm. listen. And, let me let me say something here. Again and again and again, on this podcast, Out of Our Minds, we are saying, trust God and trust his word. Mm. That's all this podcast is, is we are the pastors who will not lie to you and will not use hedge phrases and will not equivocate when it comes to places that Christians today do not believe God's word and do not believe God is good. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's just over and over again, all we have to offer. We are the pastors who will actually tell you what is on our mind. <laughs> and it will sound like we're out of our mind <laughs> because We believe that Scripture is true, though all men are liars. Now, why am I saying that right now? Well, because I can just imagine people thinking, oh, we couldn't possibly have had any children in our first year of marriage. We were having to pay off student loan debt. Mm. Now, I just use that as an illustration. I could go on with 100 illustrations. But I am going to tell you that if you believe that money is what makes a good marriage and a good home and a good basis for a family, you're an idiot. 
You're an absolute idiot. Money is much more likely to ruin your home and your marriage. Look, we live in the United States of America. Right. Here's an idea. You can go down behind the local Dunkin' Donuts for breakfast and get it out of the dumpster <laughs> and McDonald's for lunch and get it out of the dumpster, uh, and you won't have to pay a penny. As long as you don't now, get squashed. Now, listen, people are laughing at this, right? I, I get it, right? Yeah. But my point is, do we trust God or don't we? And so here's where I'm headed. What was the first woman called? Eve. Why was she called Eve? Uh, the mother. Of the living. Of the living. Why is she able to be the mother of the living? Is there any differentiation <laughs> in the bodies? <laughs> I've noticed some. Uh, what is that differentiation <laughs> at its essence? What is it? Uh, l- life-givingness. Let's name the body parts because people apparently today have forgotten that those body parts exist. Well, a womb. And the breasts. Right. Now, here's an idea. If God differentiated male and female by giving one of the sexes a womb and breasts. Okay, think about this. Yeah. Is that good? And, of course, everybody's going to say, well, yeah. Of course they And will. then yeah. the question is, you have the obligation of making your wife happy. Do you think that your wife is healthy enough that she is in love with how God made her? My point in saying all of this is we are so capable of denying what is as plain as the nose on the end of our face or as the breasts on the front of your wife. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. Now, seriously. Yeah, yeah. Can we believe that for a man to live as God made him, broad shoulders, carrying responsibility, mm. can we believe, have the faith to believe that, that woman as God made her Life giver. Can we believe that the essence of what the female sex is, namely, she shall be called Eve because she's going to give us life. Mm. That valuing this, that loving this, that celebrating this, that using this is happiness, joy, faith, Christian, submissive, Mm. gorgeous, you know, in other words, listen, this is what I'm trying to say. Please don't talk to me about gender. Please don't talk to me about how much you and your wife enjoy each other's company and try to avoid discussing the physical act of union and the products of that lovemaking, which are new little men and little women. Can you please understand that when we live according to how God's made us and who he's made us, that this is what gives us joy? Mm. And can we stop letting the world twist us and compress us into its mold? Be not conformed. Don't let the J.B. Phillips, don't let this world press you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And where does our mind need to be renewed more? than in the most basic first things 
about a man loving a woman and the two being married and them allowing the woman to give herself to who God made her to be. I was one time walking out of a Sam's Club and with my wife and we were we were uh, you know two customers behind a woman who had I think seven children with her. Hmm. Now we <laughs> we knew the woman. My wife and, never does that. <laughs> and and her children delight in her. Mm. And when they were with her, they were they walked like if you've ever seen geese walking oh, with their yeah, goslings, yeah. they walked like that. They never left far from mother yeah, at yeah. any time. And she was just this tall this tall captain yeah. carrying along the, the, the crowd, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then behind her and in front of us was an old woman with a young man, a, a younger man, middle-aged, I don't know how old he was. I assumed it was her son. And we overheard her as she's, as she's watching and observing this other woman we over, and her children. We overheard her say to this young man, if I would have had that many children, I would have killed myself. Wow. Immediately what I thought was, well, if, if that was her son she was talking to, he Yikes. must feel really good about how much joy she's had in him wow. and the light he's had in her, in his existence, right, that she's had in his existence. But at the same time, I think it really does illustrate the difference between God-hating and God-loving. Mm. Loving that God made you a woman and hating God made you a woman. How in the world, if you knew this woman, I'm not saying her life is easy. I'm not saying her right. life is without trouble. It's got lots of trouble. There'll be trouble till she dies. Mm-hmm. But the delight that she's had in that throng of children all around her that she and her husband have enjoyed, that God has blessed them with, is a completely different paradigm. It's a completely different worldview than death mm-hmm. and self-service and selfishness. Mm-hmm. It's just absolutely different. And the joy that comes of it, the joy and benefits that come from living, uh, acknowledging and embracing what God has given us to be, mm-hmm. made us to be, is overwhelmingly wonderful and good. Mm-hmm. And if we could understand that when we started our first year of marriage and believe it then, mm. do you understand? Yeah. We might not come to our 15th year of marriage and say, oh, the time we lost when we could have had children. Mm. We've delighted in this child that God's given us and we could have had five <laughs> and we blew it. Again, I don't want people to think this is easy, but I do want to say to husbands, there is a principle that God has written into nature, which is men lead. Mm. It's, it's irrefragable. <laughs> it is unbroken. It is incontrovertible. It is inevitable. It can't be broken. Okay. Mm. And the reason I bring this up right here is your wife will love the things you love. Now, I don't mean to say that she'll love your fantasy football. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, when your heart loves God's word, God's truth, God's creation, God's gifts, God's blessings, 
your wife will love them with you. And I bring this up because we have to, as men, love not the eroticism of our wives' bodies, although we do love that. But we have to realize that eroticism is erotic because of its potential mm. to bear fruit, <laughs> fruit, fruit of lovemaking. It makes me think of G.K. Chesterton. You know, I don't know if he ever said this, but he's the kind of guy that would say something like, you know, the problem we have today is not that we're given to romance, actually. It's that we have too little, so little romance. And there's nothing quite so romantic as having a family. In <laughs> uh, so many Says ways. A man with how many children? <laughs> oh, seven, you know. <laughs> thanks so much for listening my name is lucas weeks and the conversation today was with tim bailey and max carell we serve as pastors at trinity reformed church in bloomington indiana for more great content please visit warhornmedia.com to support this podcast you can donate at patreon.com slash out of our minds bye for now (laughs) 